Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 558 of January 27th, 2024. Welcome back. Already one month down in the uh, new year. It's not so new anymore. Uh, yeah. But they were really happy to have Martha Boone come on. She is a doctor who trained at Old Charity Hospital, the big uh, big hospital that was there for so long. And um, she's written books about that and um, better experience. So we talked to her about her books, but also about her, you know, life in New Orleans as a as a uh, up and coming young doctor. And I, I really found it a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and she's also a novelist. You know, she's uh, has really, I mean, started what is essentially a second career as a as a writer. You know, doing the this memoir and writing a novel or two. So she's a very yes. interesting you know, person. Yep. So, so we'll be looking forward to talking to Martha in a moment. But first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history on January twenty seventh, seventeen thirty, Jean Paul Lassure leads 500 Choctaw Indians against the Nash's Indians. Was this like a revenge uh, attack? I think so, yeah. Like uh, after the the massacres, quote-unquote, you know, the, the Europeans were encroaching on Indian burial grounds. Yeah. Apparently, um, they had not seen poltergeist. So they just, you know, <laughs> uh, this is a no-no, you know, and uh, people don't like it when you build over their... Uh, uh, Funeral burial grounds. So anyway, um, holy grounds of you know different communities. So right. So now for this week in New Orleans history, Lakeview Theater opens January twenty eighth, nineteen forty two. Seven hundred seats, parking lot that fits three hundred cars, became the first movie house in Lakeview when it opened its doors, um, located at the corner of Harrison. Uh, Avenue and Vicksburg Street, one block off from Canal, built by contractor Robert Smith. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you could buy an adult ticket for 25 cents. A child would get in for 11 cents, and uh, it's a pretty good deal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and somehow I missed this week in Louisiana. I'll have to go back and add something to it. Sorry about I that. As that name, uh, it said about that uh, Lakeview Theater that the draperies and rugs were furnished by D.H. Holmes. That was a big, big yeah, department yeah. store. New Orleans. They, they eventually moved to where I grew up in Baton Rouge, so we had a, you know, one of their satellites there in Baton Rouge. Yeah, the, the those stores, the, you know, the local um, brands of you know and uh, identities. Those, I, I found those fascinating. Okay, so um, sorry about this week in Louisiana, but now for speaks postcard from Louisiana. I listened to Boardwalker and the Three Finger Swingers sing at Bambulas in New Orleans. Thank you. 
all those answers right there. Come on! Yeah. And now on to interview with Martha Boone. I'm Bruce McGee. Stephen will be joining us momentarily, and we're here today with Martha Boone. Welcome, Martha. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, you, um, you're a medical doctor who trained in uh, the old Cherokee Hospital, and uh, you've written a book about it, right? Yes, I've written two. Mm. Give us the name of your books and where our listeners can find them. So the first one is called The Big Free, and it's available wherever books are sold. Um, it's You can get it through my website if you can't find it anywhere else, which is www.marthaboone.com. And the second book is um, the sequel to the first novel, and it's called Mother Charity, and it's coming out March 5th of this year. And uh, are those memoirs of your time there, or are they uh, novels? Uh, how are you? You know, how you, so yeah, they're novels, but they're loosely based on my experience at Charity Hospital. And, and it's very interesting. Everybody who trained at Charity or trained at any large inner city hospital has a lot of the same stories. As uh, I went right. Around, yeah, as I went around the country promoting the, the first book, people in the audience would say, oh, yeah, that happened to me, and oh, yeah, that happened to me. So... They're my stories, but they're basically the stories of everyone who's worked in a large inner city hospital. Right. And I have a story. It's uh, not mine, but it's a friend of mine, um, Mark. Um, um, his name was Mark. And uh, he uh, he was, I guess, interning at charity, and he was pushing along a gurney with a, a gunshot victim lying on it. And the person who shot him was broken, <laughs> so Mark was running away so it was pushing the gurney like banging through doors and stuff trying to uh reach a spot where um you know the the gunman couldn't find them so yeah yeah i was there from 1985 to 1991 and that was kind of a central time for the drug wars the crack wars that were going on in new orleans and a lot of times it was really like the wild wild west in there oh yeah and it was Mark was there probably overlapping with you. I think he probably went there in, uh, well, he went to med school about 1979, but, you know, it takes a while to, to get your job at charity. Um, and um, uh, what's your specialty? Do you, uh, in the, does that play into the book? So in the book, I'm basically talking about the first six months of general surgery on the trauma service. And my final degree was in urology. Um, I was one of those crazy people who loved school. So I did two years of general surgery and then four years of general, general urology. And then I went out to California and did a fellowship in reconstruction. But my day job was a urologist. But the book is based on some of the time that I was a general surgery resident at Charity. Hmm. Something happened. Martha, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Oh, yes, yes. So uh, uh, the last thing I heard you say was uh, you went out to California. And did a um, fellowship out there in reconstruction, but my day job was in general urology. Ah, right. Howdy. And, uh, oh, hey, Stephen. Welcome. Howdy. Hi. Hi, Stephen. Hey. hey. You got any initial questions uh, uh, lined up? 
Was that to me? Yes. Yeah, just continue with what you're saying right now, and I can get to my own questions. Yeah, so um, see, that's just – and just talk a minute about the difference between medicine in Louisiana and medicine in California. So the charity hospital history is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's the second longest functioning hospital system in America after, um, I believe it's Bellevue. And the history of having a charity system throughout the state was very unique. Um, in California, nothing like that existed. So tra training in Louisiana was a particularly wonderful experience because all throughout the state were these charity hospitals. And the other fascinating thing, well, there's so many fascinating things about charity in New Orleans, but, you know, the fact that it was run by the nuns for such a long time. <clears throat> right. You certainly, certainly never found like that, anything like that in California. So I would have to say in Louisiana, the residents seemed to have a bit more autonomy at the time that I was there training. And, you know, charity had a 1,000 beds back in the day when nobody had over 500 beds, I mean, like worldwide. So it's been a large um, functioning hospital system, you know, for since probably the 1700s, actually. Well, on November 16th, 1735, Jean-Louis uh, was a French sailor and boat builder who had made it pretty well in uh, uh, New Orleans. He was disturbed by the lack of uh, care given to uh, you know the locals. So uh, when he died, he left in his will that the uh, money should be uh, directed toward uh, building and running a charity hospital. And so it was kind of easing up to the 300th birthday when Katrina hit and uh, disaster capitalism kicked in. And you know that it's also called vulture capitalism. They like to pick the bones of the society. And while all the uh, people were out of town, uh, the interest shut down charity hospitals. So, uh, we no longer have, uh, we have something of the system left, but we don't have the hospital. Exactly. And I found it fascinating that they had actually had a, <clears throat> a group of architects come in and evaluate the building, and their summary was that it was able to be reconstructed and that that would be the least expensive way to deliver the health care. And then in well, typical Louisiana politics, somehow or another, that $1.1 billion goes down the street and builds a whole new hospital, which I think was absolutely fascinating. And charities left sitting there, you know, still unused. And uh, it wasn't just able to be rebuilt. The first thing that General Honore did, or one of the early things General Honore did when he came into town with the um, with the uh, military force was to, uh, you know, clean up. It was basically dry, you know, maybe the first floor or two had water in it. But uh, they had it clean. They had uh, new sheets on the beds. The air conditioners were running. And the word came down from Baton Rouge. And this, you know, I like to blame Republicans for a lot of stuff. But this was Kathleen Blanco. It's on her. And she was our... Uh, Democratic governor at the time, and no, we don't want to reopen it. And somewhere along the way, you know, charity uh, was a very respectable, honorable word for for centuries. Uh, early Christians spoke Greek. The ones that wrote the, the Bible, New Testament, anyway, and they 
I had a word agape, which meant godly love for us, but also our love for God, and also our love for our neighbor. Uh, part of that was uh, visiting the sick and helping the sick. And, uh, so um, uh, and when it was brought over into Latin, uh, the word they used was caritas, the uh, the source of our word charity, and it's the greatest love. It's the, in a First Corinthians thirteen, uh, the King James version. Uh, you know, it talks about the greatest gift of all being charity, and and you know, and charity had an honorable, especially within Roman Catholicism, like you say, the nuns or any things. But it was it was a important component of uh, the Christian life, and um, uh, but in the 20th century, and especially after 1954, and uh, you know, charity had been uh, you know segregated. The, the black patients went into the back. There was a back entrance. Um, uh, suddenly, the uh, segregation ended, and and uh, white people discovered those people are getting our money, but charity and charity became like a word that was a you know attacked for decades before they decided to close Charity Hospital. But when they did close it, the, the ground for it had been prepared by this kind of running battle on charity in our country. <laughs> anyway, it's my observation. Uh, well, what are your thoughts on... I would, you know, I, would point, I would point out, too, I mean, I'm a product yeah. of charity. I was born in Shreveport Charity, what they then called Confederate Memorial, and it was the <laughs> natural successor to uh, what was called Old Charity. That was the, the name of the original charity hospital in Shreveport. And I'm a, I'm a Volunteers of America baby. And all of those babies were sent to Confederate to be born, to be delivered. And also the teaching hospital, it still is, but it was a teaching hospital for North Louisiana, Southwest Arkansas, Northeast Texas, and Southeast Oklahoma. I mean, this is, it's, it's a, it covers a four-state area. And so, it's a, it's a but, big hospital, too, Stephen. You sent me a picture of it the other day. Yeah, it covers a good hunk of a city block in Shreveport, you know, down and kind of kind of towards the southwest part of town. And on top of that, they the the teach. My mother was over there nursing training for a time. My aunt, two of my aunts actually did finish their nursing degrees, but my mom just she didn't didn't it didn't uh, resonate with her, so she bailed out and went into actually went into banking. But anyway, she was trained and her sisters were trained by nurses out of Johns Hopkins. So, I mean, it was a really, really good program. In fact, I would say it was outstanding in its way. And this is back, you know, in the 30s and 40s. I think it it was and is a good system. Yeah. From from the standpoint of someone training in that system, um, it was almost a spiritual experience. Um, One of the things about charity was that it was basically run by the nurses. And I think one of the problems in medicine is that we have not given the nurses enough credit. You know, when something goes right or something goes wrong, we either give the accolades to the doctor or the blame to the doctor. But the nurses are what makes your hospital great. And Charity had the most amazing nurses. So in both of my books, both The Big Free and in Mother Charity, I try to highlight the importance of the nurses to the patients because they're the ones who are always there. You know, the doctors rotate in and out. The doctors go home. And the nurses are the ones that are there caring for the patients. And from a training standpoint, the doctors were not getting compensated financially for what we did. We got like a stipend. I think I made $15,000 a year, and I basically ate off charity meal tickets. But the patients, you know, we were the last thing for them. I mean, they had nowhere else to go. 
Mm-hmm. And so, so we really took ownership and we were very proud of the outcomes that we got with our patients. And, you know, these were our patients and that meant something to us. You know, we weren't doing any unnecessary tests because we didn't have the financial wherewithal to do that. In fact, right. as residents, we would go across the street and steal from the VA, which was a federal system, <laughs> and bring things back to charity, almost like robbers, you know, almost like Robin Hood, and bring equipment back to charity to take care of the state people who we couldn't get enough funding to buy. I mean, sometimes charity would run out of aspirin, and we'd all have, you know, the chief residents would have keys to things at the VA, and we'd go break in and steal things and bring it back to charity. But we were really in, we were invested in the care of these patients, and they mm-hmm. trusted us. I mean, they trusted us. And, you know, being out in private practice in a wealthy suburb where people, you know, have a ton of money, um, it's not the same relationship. It's not as clean of a relationship because everything is so expensive and every single thing you do, there's a dollar attached to it. But in the charity system, it was much more pure. It was about doing the absolute best you could for these people who needed you like they needed their next breath, knowing that it wasn't going to make a bit of difference in your financial compensation. So that was a big, almost, I mean, I hate to sound so hokey, but it was like a spiritual experience to train in a place like that. Oh, my aunt would run into patients in Shreveport, and look, she would see people that she had not seen in 20, 30 years. And she was a nurse for a little over 50 years, I mean, into her early, I think, early mid-70s. And still working. And she would see patients, and they would remember her from 20, 30 years before and stop her in the grocery, you know, stop her at church and say, thank you so much for what you did and, you know, for saving my life or for treating me or treating my child or whatever. And we really did have the opportunity to make a big difference in these people's lives. I mean, one of my mentors was a guy named Norman McSwain, who was the chief of trauma and charity for years and years and years. And he's kind of world-renowned because he set up a lot of the trauma protocols that are used in our military even today. And he was also very important in setting up this, the nationwide um, trauma system, you know. And he taught advanced trauma life support and wrote books on it. But, <clears throat> you know, he taught us these are your patients and how they do or don't do depends on you. And, you know, your butt's on the line and you better take good care of these people. Right, and, right. you know, I've carried that with me forever. And so being in private practice in a wealthy area, when someone stands at the front desk and screams because their copay has gone from $25 to $30, it's a little, <laughs> bit, hard, it's a little bit hard to take it. Um, <laughs> but the charity system, you know, we were dealing with life and death. And, I mean, we were doing everything yeah. with nothing. Well, and I'm old enough to remember uh, news stories about the growth of the trauma center, you know, Hospitals have forever had um, emergency rooms, but there's a specific, like, triage. You know, you take the patient who needs the attention now. They go to the front of the line. And then there are ways you treat the patient quickly and efficiently so that uh, you can, you know, intervene before they die because otherwise they're going to die if they just sit here. Um, Exactly. And... uh, and then I did not realize that New Orleans had been one of the innovators in trauma medicine. Yes, absolutely. And Dr. McSwain <coughs> was kind of the head of that. And he's actually one of the people who talked me into writing my first novel. After Katrina destroyed charity, he called me and he said, look, you've been sending me these stories about charity for 20 years. He's like, you need to write a book because that place needs to be memorialized. 
And he mm-hmm. said, you know, not in a fictional, not in a non-fictional way, but he goes, tell the stories. And, you know, he was 75 and I was about 55, but he was still right. my professor. So when he called me and said, you know, you have to do this, I felt a lot of anxiety. So I was getting up at 4 <laughs> o'clock in the morning to write the first book. And um, I had tried to call his bluff on it. I said, well, if I can use your name, I'll write the book. And he goes, I'd be honored if you use my name. So he's actually the only character in the book who is himself. Norman cool. McSwain. Yeah, Norman McSwain, the famous trauma surgeon. is <laughs> one of the characters in the book. But you know, unfortunately, he's, he's passed. So. I think the closest any of us who were from that era that were uh, not actually part of the hospital maybe uh, get a little idea was of the old scene elsewhere. Did you watch that show? You know, I never watched TV, but I have heard people talk about that, but I, haven't, I never saw it. Well, it was the uh, the Catholic hospital, St. Allegis in uh, Boston was was there, um, you know, and um, but it was eighties medicine, right? Like uh, I'm sure that the, the the IVs and all that kind of looked similar to what y'all had uh, because hospitals today are quite different. And you were talking about diagnosing earlier. I had a pediatrician, uh, Bruce Everest, who was. Uh, you know, he was this old doctor, you know, he smelled like cigarette smoke and uh, very <laughs> serious and grave and gravelly and he had to talk to you as the kid, you know, he wanted to hear from you. And they talk about how he would train younger generations of, um, of uh, uh, pediatricians as they moved to Ruston and said, how to diagnose because they were coming through in an era where you could diagnose with a machine and uh, supposedly could tell by the, you know, the way a kid smelled when they walked in the door or sometimes what they had. Like he was just that kind of guy. It was a, you know, a pal, you know, like put your hands on, uh, and, uh, use the stethoscope and just the basic, basic tools of the trade. But, you know, it was right more often than not. Yeah, my my chairman at Tulane was a guy named Blackwell Evans, and he told me like the first week, he said, if you will sit in that chair and listen with everything you have, the patient will tell you what's wrong with them. He said, before you order a test, before you put a hand on them, if you really listen, they will tell you what's wrong with them. And that was one of the most valuable pieces of information I ever got. Yeah, and uh, the history is so important, and it's tempting in a medical situation to trust the test rather than the take the history. For one thing, it's quicker, right? <laughs> yeah. So I did want to tell you guys kind of one funny story. So yes, please. Tell us some of your stories. So throughout the history of charity, you know, they've always had the nuns, and um, pretty much the, the nuns kind of took over run in charity. I think it was around 1834 that the Sisters of Charity took over. And in the urology clinic, we had a little nun named Sister Marion, who was about five feet tall, maybe 4'11", weighed about 95 pounds, and we did the Angola Prison Clinic. If you can imagine, urology doing the oh my Angola gosh. Prison Clinic, and these prisoners were terrified of Sister Marion. I mean, <laughs> she had those little white support hose and this little thick, you know, plastic bottom wedge shoes. And these were murderers and rapists and, you know, serial killers. 
and they were afraid of Sister Miriam. She ran she ran that clinic like she was General Patton, and I mean it ran really well. So she was kind of one of the last nuns to actually run a clinic there. But I did have the wonderful experience of getting to work with her, and I was afraid of her too. Um, yeah, the, the last pope before this one, I think it was Benedict, some number. Anyway, toward you know he'd been there a while. I mean, his job before. He became Pope was the Inquisition, you know, the, the, uh, the, the job that used to be the Inquisition, they've changed the name, but, you know. Uh, uh, anyway, he comes in and uh, he comes out with this big thing about he's going to get American nuns under control, right? So they're just way too far out there for the church, and he's going to see to it that they tow the church line. Uh, next thing you know, he's retiring, and the Pope's never retired, dude moves to a mountain somewhere, you know, and it, it's just like, don't fuck with the nuns. <laughs> That's something I would think anybody would know, but he, you know, you forget that at your peril, right? <clears throat> this is, here's a funny story about Sister Miriam. So we're doing the urology clinic. Now, you have to sit on the little stool, and the, and the, the prisoner's standing in front of you, and they pull down their pants, and you're trying to examine them. Well, I was a right. doctor, and I was absolutely terrified. And here I am, face level, with this murderer's genitals, and I'm just right. seeing how fast I'm scared. But all of a sudden, this guy comes down on top of me, and I am screaming, rape, rape, rape. You know, my stool rolls back, my head bangs on the floor, and his full weight is on top of me. Well, when I look up, the policemen who have brought him in have got their guns pulled, and Sister is standing there with a bat, with all four foot eleven of her, and she grabs the guy by the back of the head because I'm screaming, rape, rape, rape. She's goes, she goes, Doctor, no one's raping you. The man fainted. Get up. We've got a full <laughs> clinic to do. She's standing there with a the bat going, Get up. We've got a full clinic to do. So, and the police put their guns away and they hauled the guy to the emergency room because he did crack his head and have to have some stitches in it. And the sister was like, You know, here, wipe the blood off of you. Get back to clinic, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> it was all in a day's work for her. Yeah, and you know that's the kind of that's the kind of nurses we had around charity. I mean, they were they made things move forward. They were no nonsense women. Most of them could have easily been doctors if they had been a, a different generation. Oh, yeah. You know, if they, if they right. had come my yeah. generation, they would have been the doctors that were in the hospital. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, you know, without a doubt, uh, because you know whatever you learn from the doctor, he's, you see him what once a day. You know, the rounds. The, the nurses are there every time they're getting a medicine, making sure that. The amount and the type of medicine is right. You know, you don't you mean this? You know, because you've been working forty hours. You're tired. You're new. Yeah, it's nice to have them as a backstop. Well, the smart doctors use them as advisors because you know the nurses had been there, right. they had the experience, and the dumb doctors would argue with them. And so the dumb doctors, it would take them a whole lot longer to get up to speed because they wouldn't utilize the nurses, you know, as their as their helpers and their you know, their coaches and their teachers. I mean, right. when, I was doing, yeah. when I was doing cardiothoracic surgery, I learned as much from the nurses in the ICU as I did from the doctors. I mean, they were the ones oh, there constantly doing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're right there on the spot. Um, and they were tough, too. I mean, my aunt was, I mean, a lot of us nephews and nieces did not get along with her because she was so tough. I mean, really, she was <laughs> her. Well, look, her own sibling, my mom, being one of the siblings, there were five kids, five surviving kids out of a family, would have been six kids. And, I mean, her own siblings didn't get along with her. But we particularly, our, our the nephews and nieces, did not get along with her because of, you know, a lot of her attitudes, which rested on this kind of, like you said, this toughness. I mean, they didn't yeah, take they're... any 
Bobby. Yeah, they were like drill sergeants. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, <laughs> you know, that at least that the profession at that time attracted. And when my mom bailed out, to her credit, my aunt did not ridicule or criticize my mother. She says, well, honey, it's not for everybody. You know, this yeah. is around 1940 when she and my dad married, in fact. And she said, no, she said, it's not for everybody. And essentially, she said, there's no harm, no foul. In other yeah. words, it's, you know, you shouldn't feel ashamed because you bailed out because it's just, it's not the profession for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, tell us some more of your stories, if you don't mind. So, since you used the F word, what that made me think of is, is, <laughs> Yeah, we are... This is a fairly racy program, so I guess I can tell kind of anything, is that correct? Yes, yes, you can. That's right. Okay. So I was one of the first 100 women in the United States board certified in urology. So urology is 98% male when I started, oh, yeah. and, it's, and it's 93% male now. So I was one of those women who worked in a totally male-dominated field. And when I came along, they were trying to figure out how to integrate women into surgery because surgery had been so male-dominated and so rough and tumble, and Tulane was brilliant, and they knew that it was time for women to be there, but they had to figure out how to get us into the program. So I'm a first-year surgery resident, and we have these gigantic pagers. They look like a speaker that would have been at, like, a a drive-in movie. And when it would go off, it would project, like, two blocks. I mean, everybody could hear it. But So I, I get paged to the chairman's office. Well, the two gentlemen that are my same year in residency, they're all excited because it's like, oh, the girl's got to go to the boss's office. And so they're thinking, oh, she must be in trouble. So I go over there, and this little short, fat, bald-headed gentleman with a heavy Virginia accent, he looks nervous. He's the chairman of the department. And he starts to try to talk, he starts to, try to, talk to me, and my pager goes off, and it screams, we're in the call room, and our pants are down. So these two these these two monkeys, they know I'm over there with the chairman, but they're disguising their voices. So the chairman starts to talk over and he says, You know, we have this yearly Christmas party and it's always, you know, a little bit wild. Well what it was is that the boys would go down to the quarter to strip clubs and get drunk mm. and the staff would cover for them. Well they were right. trying to figure out they were trying to figure out something to do to incorporate me, but yet not take all their fun away. So he was trying to tell me that they were gonna have a dinner at a nice restaurant, you know, and I could go to that. Well, my page uh, yeah. goes off again, and it screams, we're in the call room, and our pants are down. So <laughs> the chairman's face turns fire into the red, and I'm plotting, I'm plotting to murder these two monkeys who are my colleagues. And I pull out my little daytimer. I don't know if you guys remember those, but those are the leather wallets that you write. Oh, absolutely. I'm a, I, pull that, I pull that thing out, and a whole bunch of condoms come out of the middle of it. Oh my God! <laughs> my co- my colleagues had packed my daytimer with condoms, so I pulled it out. They they float down to the floor in slow motion, and one of them right, sticks right. on one of them sticks on the top of these brown wingtip shoes of the chairman of surgery. And he looks up at me and he goes, he goes, "Honey, I'm glad you're enjoying Tulane." And he turns around and goes back in his office. <laughs> but you know, it was. A, it was a time in history when they were trying to figure out how to do this. And, you know, what we ended up doing was I went to the dinner, and then the boys went out, you know, and did whatever they did after that. But, you know, nice. it took it took a while to figure out how to work all these things out, you know, to because to, they couldn't just stop all the traditions that they had forever because they happened to have a girl there. So so my baby sister was in uh, tech, becoming an electrical engineer and computer scientist in the late 60s. No, late 70s and early 80s. And, uh, 
it was the first wave, right? This is the first time that tech had been co-ed forever, but women were nurses, as you say, and were teachers, and there were certain like you know women's majors, and then uh, engineering was a men's major. But Yale said that there are actually more women going into engineering her time than there are right now. She said, uh, you know, just uh, something about that first wave, you know, people were aware, women were aware that these doors were opening and they were kind of trying to get in through them. And and uh, it, it, I guess, you know, we're in a more conservative era now and uh, uh, it, it's kind of back to what it was. And technically, the door is open, but getting women educated in STEM when they're in K-12 and then, uh, you know, bring them into those uh, uh, technology majors. That's a, it's been a hurdle, you know. And, and computer science is a men's club uh, to this day. Yeah. Well, in your roles, yeah, I think they were actively trying to make it all men. Up yeah, yeah, yeah. Now. They were recruiting more, I think, yeah. Yeah, until around the 80s. And then they started realizing probably around 83 to 85, oh, no, we need to get some women in this. And then it wasn't particularly attractive to women, and it's still not because the training is so long. It lasts right. um, it lasts six to seven years after medical school, and so that's really right in the middle of your childbearing years. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit, you know, unattractive because of the the length of the training. I think. Yeah, I, I would imagine so because. Um... It's not like you can take a year off and have a baby during that. Um, you have to, I guess, have the baby and be back at work in a couple of weeks. Uh, if you're gonna, Two days. If you're gonna, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> two days. You get, you get it two days. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I didn't have any children, so I, I, I realized that the two things weren't going to go together, so I actually well, didn't I, have any children. I, Eventually, there was a phrase, uh, mommy track and career track. And, uh, you know, you, you had to choose one, which, of course, men have never, ever, ever had to choose, right? Um, we've always been able to have it all. But given your society arranged, like in World War II, when they wanted Rosie the Riveter to work uh, because the men were in, you know, Germany and headed towards Japan, and suddenly there's a labor shortage. Boy, they stepped up. They put daycare in uh, factories, and, you know, made sure that there was, uh, you know, uh, nighttime care because you had to run these factories 24 hours a day. And so, you know, whatever the women needed, they gave it to them, and then they just took it back at the end. It was kind of like we saw a lot of the progressive things that popped up during COVID just, you know, go away once the immediate crisis was over. Uh, don't get used to it, folks. <laughs> We're coming to get it back. Yeah. I really um, have, have I'm, I grew up in South Carolina, but I have a huge crush on Louisiana. I yeah. mean, the food, the melting pot, the music, <laughs> the culture. And it makes for great fiction because there's just so many characters in Louisiana. I mean, the politics, yeah. the history. I mean, just to walk around New Orleans, you can write a whole book about that. Um, so I'm a big Louisiana fan. Where were you from in South Carolina? So my grandparents had a farm between Bamberg and Denmark. My father grew up in Georgetown, and we lived in the low country. So I worked on my grandparents' farm all during the summertime, which I think is part of what made me um, 
particularly suited for doing surgery at a time when there weren't many women because on the farm everybody worked together and there was no real discrimination between male, female, black, white, it didn't matter. We were all doing our job because we had to because that was our food. I mean, that was how we were going to survive. And so, you know, if the pig got out of the barn or got out of the pen, you had to chase it down and catch it no matter whether you were a man or a woman. You know, granddaddy's like, if you're the right size and you can get the pig, then you need to go get it. I don't care if you're a boy or a girl. So I never grew up really thinking that this is a woman's job and that's a man's job. Now, my grandmother did make most of the biscuits and fry most of the chicken, and my grandfather right, did, right. You know, my grandfather did do a lot of the hunting, but still, there was kind of no jobs that girls had to do and boys, you know, had to do. Right. So, so my mind wasn't really thinking, you know, that I can't do this because I'm a girl. I was like, oh, I want to do this. You know, it just didn't really occur to me that I couldn't do it because I was a girl, and I think that was very helpful because I didn't spend yeah, a lot of time yeah, thinking yeah. about that. Well, just a quickie bit of history. So after Louisiana became a state, in 1812 and up to 1861, the Civil War started. There were wave upon waves of, of settlers that, that, that moved or migrated into this area, into North Louisiana, where Bruce and I are from. If you notice, the, 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 we don't sound like people that have been in school with you in New Orleans. That's the reason why. They were coming from the southeast, from over your way. And a lot of them came from Carolina, from both Carolinas. They came from North and South. In fact, a lot of my family came out of South Greenville and up that way. So they were they were careful. and in fact there were a lot of settlement down here near the high point in the state around the somewhere around Bienville or someplace I think it's called Liberty Hill but that was actually a South Carolina settlement and they were oh. all place yeah uh, what my fourth great third great grandmother was from I think Greenville maybe or, 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 or Lawrence County or somewhere but anyway she was she was a South Carolinian too. So yeah, there were they were they were South Carolina literally that came into this area, which is why we sound rather like South Carolina and North Carolina. And that's not a coincidence. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was looking back at the history of charity and actually one of the um doctors who helped convert it to a teaching hospital was from South Carolina, Thomas Hunt, who was from South Carolina. He was he was one of the three guys who helped who helped change change, change that whole charity system into a teaching system. Um, which occurred, I think, around 1834 also. Mm. Probably because the nuns told them to. <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, we have, um, uh, what is the name of that by, uh, book by Madison Tintala, Leaves from a Country Doctor, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen? Yeah. And so he was rural medicine, which is quite different from what they were, well, I mean, probably some of the tools and techniques are the same, but it's just, you know, you're going out in a horse. He, in fact, he died when he drowned crossing a, a, a creek that was that had risen. And, and uh, you know, it was a, kind of you on your own out there. And um, But it, it's an interesting look into, uh, like, the medicine of the 1830s and 40s. The other thing that was interesting to me at Charity was the voodoo culture. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that. So even growing up in the low country in South Carolina, where there is, you know, the Geechee Gullah um, traditions, and I knew a lot of people, and, you know, both of my uncles really could speak, you know, Gullah. But growing, you know, growing up in South Carolina did not prepare me for Louisiana. 
I mean, the patients would come in and they would see us after they had been to the voodoo doctor and had tried absolutely everything. <laughs> and I mean, they would have poultices, they would have things tied around their neck, they would have the right. smelliest stuff you've ever seen in your life. You'd operate on somebody and you'd turn them over and there'd be a chicken foot under their under the back of them. And, you know, they believed in this stuff. And there's some pretty famous cases from the history of Charity Hospital where people actually died for no medical reason that we could find because they believed that someone had put, you know, a hex on them. Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah, and, you know, a grigri was a very scary thing to them. I mean, they weren't playing around. And every now and then, somebody would come into the emergency room. We would see them need a surgery. They would refuse to have it, and they would say they were going back to their voodoo doctor. And I think they called them a trator, a trator. Yeah, they would come back, and, and they would be fixed. I mean, I remember one very poignant time. This man came in. His finger had been amputated. And he had this horrible, nasty-smelling pulses on it. And I told him he needed to go to the operating room to have it debrided and that we could not put his finger back on, that that was not going to work because the blood supply was already gone. And right. he, said, well, I, he said, well, I'll just take my own luck. Well, he came back in several months later, bringing in one of his children, and his finger was back on, and it was working. And I mean, there was no, there was no medical reason. For and you know, I mean, I saw a lot of kids, particularly in the pediatric part of the hospital, that they would just have all kinds of things on them. They would have ashes. They would have, I mean, just anything you can imagine on. But every now and then, you know, the power of belief, um, yeah, would yeah. work. And, and well, even when I made it to like, some degree up into North Louisiana, not to the degree in the South, but. We had a colleague at Tech, several years older than this, Wiley Hilburn, who's kind of the dean of uh, North Louisiana journalists when he was starting out in the 50s. He was, I don't know, right along with the sheriff uh, deputy. Uh, they were going to check on this guy for um, uh, having a still. They thought he was a bootlegger. They get to his house, and there's this white line around the house, either chalk or salt, I can't, uh, and uh, that... <laughs> Look at that line. He thinks that's going to protect him. And then they sit there and they sit there. <clears throat> Wiley says, well, are we going in? No, no. Can't you see there's a line there? <laughs> so it absolutely kept that guy out of jail that night. Um, just the power of, because, you know, I don't believe, but I don't want to, I don't want to test it out right um, in both of my books, the, the Big Free and Mother Charity, I do tell a, a voodoo story in each of them from the emergency room. So I tried to tie a little bit of that in there, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, because uh, there is, a, and especially was, like uh, New Orleans doubled in size during the, uh, the Haitian Revolution. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> a lot of the, the voodoo that was there came over here and probably was more active, you know, 30, 40 years ago even than it is today. You know, it's more mostly touristy kind of stuff today, but uh, I have been to a voodoo shop out in a neighborhood that didn't look like they get a lot of tourists out there. So uh, it's still there if you know where to look for it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're correct. A lot of people, I do a lot of um, speaking and I do a lot of book signings and stuff, and people frequently ask me, you know, how did you go from being a surgeon to being a writer and I think all of us who have jobs where we interact with a lot of people you know whether you're a teacher or a policeman or a doctor or whatever 
we hear people's stories every day, all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's like fertile ground for writing any kind of book because the dialogue is there because you've heard it all day long. The mm-hmm. stories right. are there because you've seen them. So I think any kind of job where you're regularly with folks, if you're paying attention, you've got you know a plethora of material, really, to, to draw from. Uh, yeah, I was just telling the truism. Among, I mean, one of the areas I studied in grad school was narratology, the, the formal study of narrative or story. And I will tell you that the narratologists say that, that it, it's kind of a truism among them that we are our stories. Well, I just told a uh, class yesterday, it's our freshman composition, and we're working on a couple of page narrative. And I said, guys, you know, most of you are Louisiana kids. You've got storytelling in your blood. So, why don't you um, just turn on your phone recorder and tell one of your good stories and then type it down exactly like that? Because, uh, you know, you're only going to mess it up if you try to think about it too much. Exactly. I mean, to me, that's like what a first draft is. I mean, you just sit there and you write it out, and you know it's going to be crap. and It's not going to make a lot mm-hmm. of sense. But you, at least you get the story out in that first draft. Then you, well, then you can polish it, right? I mean, Stephen does that all the time with um, with your novels. Yeah, I mean, I write I write these detective novels set in the '30s based on an actual character of in magazine fiction in the '30s, and I just used. I didn't want to do the voodoo thing because it's gotten to be a cliche with New Orleans, so I did a werewolf story instead. Oh, that's cool. Because there are Cajuns that went into New Orleans, that's a Cajun legend, but it goes back not just to old Europe, but it goes specifically back to ancient Greece. Is that the Luke Garou thing? Yeah, yeah, it, it's a, it actually has Greek origins. I mean, this is something Bruce Bruce's area is classical lit. Mine's 18th century Bruce lit. But yeah, you, I studied that 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 the those those werewolf legends go back to ancient Greece and lycanthropy and all that. That's that's kind of the origin of it, at least in in Western narrative. Now. You have Native American uh, people groups like the Navajo. They talk about these skinwalkers that can put on the wolf skin and they become a wolf. So it's a different source. But in Western Europe, it goes back to Greece. So do you have a website, or how can I get your book? Um, they're on Amazon, actually. I mean, I can I can send you an email after and send you a link. Yeah, uh, this, I this would one, love to I'd love to read that. I called my publisher. And Something's happening <clears throat> with the sound. There's some kind of loud noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, move your phone around a little. And and so but anyway, I, I got a <laughs> he, he, told me, he told me that he um probably wouldn't be able to even look at my story till the summer and that more than likely not until this time next year, which would be really late December, early January, could we get it published. But no, this story is using something that's a discovery that we take for granted today. And I'll leave it leave it to your imagination what it is. But it's what gives the werewolves their super strength, their agility, et cetera. And they look like wolves, werewolves, and they smell bad too, because of course a werewolf would not smell like perfume. So oh, this sounds great! I can't wait to read this. <laughs> it's set in oh, no. New Orleans, which was probably the most ridiculous city in the country, besides maybe Houston. Or any coastal city to, to run a prohibition, sort of a, you know, or, or, or enforce prohibition, say, because, you know, people don't realize outside the Gulf Coast, which is nowadays being called the Third Coast, well, the Gulf Coast of the United States is almost a thousand miles long. Dirty coast. They call it the Dirty Coast. <laughs> there's like a loud noise that sounds almost like wind or something rubbing on something. Can you guys hear that? Let's see if I can 
do anything about that. Was that better? That seems better, yeah. So my biggest uh, humiliation in my life came in a hospital. I was a pastor for uh, many years, and uh, but from North Louisiana, so thoroughly embedded in Baptist, uh, Pentecostal, you know, Episcopal, Presbyterian, but not so knowledgeable about Catholic. And I had this uh, church down in uh, South Louisiana near. Uh, Come in here, Kentwood, and uh, one of my parishioners was sick, and he, uh, his wife was a member. He had never actually joined, but came all the time. But he was technically a Catholic, and he was in the hospital dying, and I go in there, and I'm visiting with him, and I, it's, you know, late January, and I say, uh, he's got some uh, beads hanging down from uh, the other side of the bed. I say, oh, did somebody bring you some Mardi Gras beads? Uh, that's the rosary. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can tell you from a medical standpoint, Mardi Gras beads can be found in every single orifice that a child has. So, oh, my God. In the month after Mardi Gras, if a child comes in with something weird going on, look for a Mardi Gras bead because they can be in the ears, the nose, the trachea. They could be in the vagina, the rectum. Yeah, they could be everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course. It is New Orleans. (laughs) And probably not a few adults. The same thing. Yeah, I've gotten a few Mardi Gras beads out of a, some interesting places with with a grown male, grown males. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned something a second ago. I'd like to follow up on about uh, speaking or you know, doing book signings. Have you traveled around the state and 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 tried to you know start uh, getting the word out about your book? Because that that would really be a a wonderful kind of endeavor for you to to pursue. Yeah, so I did the Louisiana Book Festival um, when the when the Big Free first came out, and I'm actually applying to try to go back to that um, this year, the Louisiana Book Festival in um, Baton Rouge. Um, I did the Bayou Tesh Book Festival, and I'm planning on applying for that one. New Orleans has a book festival, and I actually wanted to participate in that one, but they sent me a letter saying they're trying to do they're trying to include more diversity. And so they're not, I, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but. Um, Somehow being the first urologist <laughs> to come out of uh, New Orleans is not uh, diverse, right? The first female urologist. I'm, whatever, for whatever reason, I'm not as diverse as what they're looking for. So I was going to try to go through some of the bookstores. Like I did, um, I did a thing with the Garden District bookstore in New Orleans. But if you guys have any places that you recommend or if there's anything, any speaking opportunities with you guys, I mean, I do Zoom, I can travel. Um, if you think of anything that you think would be important, you know, I would love to do it. There so, are two I would recommend. Uh, one our favorite uh, uh, every year is uh, the Louisiana Studies Conference. It's a little yeah. smaller than some of your conferences. It's in Natchitoches, but everybody there is uh, interested in Louisiana. Most of them are professionals, like uh, studying Louisiana from one angle or another. And it's a great place to give a, a a talk. And you might even be able to line up to be the major speaker. Like they've got one thing where everybody meets in the big room uh, and uh, have yeah. that, you know, that one presentation. The other place is Louisiana Historical <laughs> Society, which switches around uh, where they go. And it's in March, I think. So, yeah, look at those two. So I may have actually I may have actually spoken at the Louisiana Historical Society. It was at the Presbyter, 
And um, it was the one of the, it was the most fascinating book event that I did because Mitch Landrew got on at the last minute and took the whole thing over. There were three keynote authors. I was one of them, and there was actually a guy from Canada who I continue to be friends with. And at the last minute, Mitch Landrew plugged himself into the program and pretty much took over the whole thing. <laughs> So that was kind of interesting. <laughs> that, that Louisiana Studies Conference, and Bruce and I have now been, what, Bruce, about seven or eight or nine times. It's a bunch of times we've been. And we've been going all, always based on some, some text that's in our project because our project is really, we call it the anthology. It's really, as we've said years ago, it's really a library. So we can draw from that library, so to speak, at, any, at, at will to speak down there or to speak at any other presentation. And what they do, they don't just bring in literary scholars like Bruce and myself. They bring in historians, geographers, uh, cultural studies people, uh, anthropologists, archaeologists. So it's, it's really the whole range of the humanities and social sciences. I mean, it's pretty pretty incredible. So how um, would I get in touch with them? Do you have a suggestion, uh, Brad? Yeah, I can tell you, if you go Google Shane Rasmus at Northwestern. How do you spell that? Yeah, Shane, S-H-A-N-E, like the movie Shane with Alan Ladd. And so Shane Rasmussen, R-A-S-M-U-S-S-E-N, I think. And if you'll Google him, and like I said, we can we can send you a link to, to Shane's uh, 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 email at, at Northwestern, and he can tell you all the particulars because they, they have already issued a call for the, the papers that will come and the presentations that will come in uh, September. And so Bruce and I more than likely, you know, if, if we feel like it and if the weather's fitting, we'll probably try to roll down there. It's it's about it's not quite a hundred miles from Ruskin. About eight now, I don't know that the call has gone out yet because I, I don't remember seeing it for next year. I'll already text it to you. Okay. So any any leads y'all have on anybody you think you would be would be interested, you know, I would definitely um, be happy to do them. Um, okay, I just texted it to you. If, um, Hoping that you have a cell phone. Um, there's a. There's also a. I mean, I, you you could hit the the book chain stores like Barnes and Noble, and you have all all up here. You have that. Also, books a million. Uh, there's one in Monroe. There's one in Shreveport. I think there's one in LA. There's one up as far north outside of Louisiana as, as Texarkana. I think on the Texas side of Texarkana, but they're all around this area, and you okay. would contact probably contact corporate because they they sell a lot of what they call books of local or regional interest, and they carry a lot of Louisiana and Texas books. Okay. It would, it would certainly pay you to, you know, to, to, to uh, email them, e email corporate. And our local libraries, the public libraries, they do author uh, events where you come in and bring a stack of books and people from the neighborhood come in and pretty well attended, and uh, especially something of local interest like Charity Hospital. You're going to have a lot of folks show up who, to remember it. Yeah, I did a lot of. Um, I'm doing actually. I have two library events next week, but I haven't. I haven't done them in Louisiana. I've just done them around Georgia's. But that's a very good idea. Maybe I'll try to do that. That would be kind of a fun thing. Any excuse to go to New Orleans? <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I mean, there's a, the, the other. I mean, I grew up in Baton Rouge, even though my family's from up here in the Hill Country, and Baton Rouge, East Baton Rouge Parish Library. That's the probably the next best library system in the state besides the New Orleans public library system. And I would contact them for sure because it's not far from New Orleans, but you would get a lot of people coming in from the Baton Rouge area. I mean, it wouldn't be just the city. It'd be, you know, a lot of the surrounding area there in southeast Louisiana more than likely would, would roll in to hear, you, hear your presentation. 
Okay, well, that'll be that's a great idea too. Um, that's a wonderful idea. So, yeah, I would, and especially since Katrina, a large, you know, a lot of New Orleanians uh, went to Baton Rouge and never came back. You'll have a built-in local audience who uh, who remember the old charity hospital. Yeah. So and probably got, it was like it was like a, like a, when I was up at Tangipahoe, almost Mississippi. You had a kid who in the church who got leukemia. And charity was where they went. You know, like uh, uh, it was pretty far away, but it was the one place where you could take a really sick kid. You know, with something like that. And, get good treatment and not come out completely in debt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't really realize that um, if the President of the United States got shot in New Orleans, they were going to take him to charity. I mean, they they had a room that they kept for the President whenever they were in town. If we had any big visiting dignitary, it was it was always a room that was available at charity because they knew those, the best surgeons were over there. Well, right. And, and the trauma, you know, like the... Um, like, you know, Ronald Reagan, I think that's when trauma hospitals really hit the news. Was, uh, after he got shot, like, he should have died. Um, but they had this brand new thing called a trauma hospital. And just kept filling in, you know, putting the blood in and shutting down the, the places it was coming out. And we're able to save him, but it was because um, of that research that was done on just every Per, or every person with a gunshot that came in, you know? When I was there, there were two things that I thought were very important. Um, Dr. McSwain recognized that what happened in the field determined whether the person made it or not for a lot of trauma. So he was very adamant about training the EMTs and setting up a system for them and making sure that they were well-trained. And there's still an EMT training program named after him. I think it's the McSwain Trauma Training Center. And it's Uh basically to make sure that the people in the field know absolutely everything that they can possibly do in transporting the people to the hospital. Because that's like the golden hour right after something happens, particularly with penetrating trauma. And, you know, another thing that was so amazing about Dr. McSwain is he he realized that Everybody had to be trained the same. So the early women that showed up for the surgery program, he treated us like everybody else. And it was like he knew that it had to go down that way. And I uh, think that was that was a brilliant way to help get us incorporated into the system. Yeah, yeah. Now, a few years back, I had some kind of allergic reaction. They didn't, never did figure out what. But as a result, I was taking a nap in our uh, uh, apartment parking lot and and uh, the guys that picked me up, uh, my wife, uh, fiance and son, so they, they just sat there for like 45 minutes working on me. And the last thing I remember him saying was, he doesn't have any blood pressure. And I was thinking, well, am I dead? I mean, I'm supposed <laughs> to have some blood pressure, you know. <laughs> they brought me back, you know. And it's probably thanks to your guy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Like that old Fred Sanford joke, you may wake up dead, you know, <laughs> which is the ultimate kind of paradox. That, that was absolutely it, Stephen. It was, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, they didn't get that lesson where you uh, have to be careful what you say in front of the patient. I guess they, that, that, right, they, had, right. they, they hadn't taken that class yet. 
Well, and you know, I guess it's important for each of them to know that I don't have any blood pressure set about getting it back. So, uh, but it was, you know, I wasn't even scared. It was, I was, you know, just kind of musing, you know, like, oh, what does what does that mean, really? You yeah. know? <laughs> so, since both of you guys are, are serious educators, I did want to just mention one thing. So, oh, please. I went to school nonstop until I was 32 years old. So I had a bazillion teachers and professors, and I mean, I interfaced with the educational system forever. And then I went on to be a professor, too, for a few years. But the single most important thing that ever happened in my entire education happened with a history professor. And she told our class, she said, I want everyone in here today to pretend that all of your opinions are wrong. You wake up tomorrow and you realize <laughs> everything you think is wrong. How is your life going to be different and how are you going to proceed? And she would regularly make us take the opposite side of an argument from the one that we believed. And that is the single most important tool I ever learned in all of my education for doing it from age six to age 32. Pretend all your opinions are wrong. <laughs> oh, and, and you got to imagine that every step forward in medicine has started with that realization. If I'm convinced that what I'm doing is right because it's been handed down by, you know, uh, uh, Hippocrates and Galen, then, then I'm not going to look any further. Yeah. And I mean, if Galileo can be put on house arrest because he said the earth's not flat, you know, and the Catholic Church was like, well, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says earth's flat, and here's all the verses that say it. And so he's like locked up and put on house arrest for the rest of his life. I mean, yeah, ideas are scary to people. And um, But nothing moves forward until we go, hmm, maybe I could be wrong. Well, in that book uh, about the country doctor, yeah, he didn't go to medical school. He was an apprentice. And there were some other apprentices and. Part of their training was to try every medicine that they had, which wasn't that long a list, right? But uh, here's the one that makes you throw up. <laughs> here's the one that is, you know, it's uh, laxative. And just whatever medicines they had at the time, the, the guys had to try them out. <laughs> the practice of medicine. <laughs> yeah, practicing on themselves. <laughs> guy was named his real name was henry clay lewis uh this madison he wrote on that pseudonym madison tensaw and he went to medical school in louisville or cincinnati but that was the gateway to the west in those days because louisiana became part of the old southwest and what was at the time he was in medical school in fact i think louisiana was the only state in the west, in the far west i mean because there was there was no other state west of the mississippi originally other than louisiana it, we were it uh, before, this is long before the Texas Revolution, much less Texas statehood. And so he comes into Louisiana, like Bruce said, around 1840, 1845. So it's about the time of the Mexican War. And this is raw frontier in those days, or or at least is what the term used to be called. It's called something else now. But it was just, there was not much around. Uh, not even any, a lot, particularly here in the Hill Country, there weren't even any Native American settlements anymore. This is before the Trail of Tears, but there just weren't any Native Americans. They had all moved on to, to other, you know, points, you know, other points around Louisiana and I think maybe into Texas too. And so he moves in here. <clears throat> the only settlements around were around what's now present-day Tallulah, and they, they called it Richmond, and that, that eventually I think was burned in the Civil War or something. 
and the remnants of it were maybe absorbed by the city of Tallulah. But he moves into the Tallulah, what, what became Tallulah, and that was a Kentucky and Virginia settlement. A lot of people from that area had, had come down here. They'd hop the Ohio River and, you know, hit the Mississippi and come down here into this frontier country to settle. So that's where he's, you know, practicing as well as on the side he's writing his, his fiction and telling these stories as though he's an old-fashioned country doctor many years out, you know, kind of looking back on his life and reminiscing over his, his youthful practice, medical practice. Oh, my God, that is fascinating. Well, I have had such a good time with you guys, but I have got to go. Yeah. It's been I, uh, so great. I know, this has been fun. So uh, Why don't you tell us the, the names of your books one more time and where people can okay. get them? So my first novel is called The Big Free. My sequel to that is coming out in March. It's called Mother Charity. And then a book that we never even got around to is my nonfiction book called The Unfettered Urologist, which is basically a love story to my patients um, that I wrote wrote after I retired. And um, all of them can be gotten off of my website, www.marthaboone.com, or you can get them at major booksellers. I mean, I I love to support small independent bookstores, but you can get them through any of the major booksellers. And, of course, on the Monster Amazon, you can get them there, too. (laughs) I had one content question that I forgot to ask earlier, and that is, um, you know, you talked about how overly, uh, you know, this is a profession mostly for male doctors. I was wondering what percentage of uh, patients that have to see a urologist are men and women, because stereotypically it's an old guy about my age who's having prostate stuff, but uh, I'm sure there's a lot of women too. So the fascinating thing about urology is there are a lot of children. So we see all these people with intersex, wow. neurogenic bladder, and so there's a lot of children in urology. And there's the specialty of pediatric urology who are who are actually some of the best surgeons anywhere. And then we have general urology, which is about 60 to 70% male patients, where we see a lot of cancers and kidney stones. And then we have the right. specialty of female urology, which kind of um, laps a little bit over with urogynecology. And so there's a fair number of women in that. And in my practice, the men who would come to me were very loyal to seeing a female doctor. And so my practice was probably about 50% male, but the average urologist, would, male urologist, would probably see about 75% male. So that's kind of the breakdown. Right, right. Very interesting. Uh, very important field of study. But I'm so glad we got to talk. This is a great topic. And uh, just uh, the place of Charity Hospital. I think we're going to have to do a full history, you know, like the beginning and the middle and, uh, you know, just kind of trace it through because we never done it. This is probably our first episode primarily on charity, so uh, Charity Hospital, so. Uh, well, their, Wiki, a, their Wikipedia page is just a wonderful summary. I've read about four books on the history of charity, but the Wikipedia right. page is a, is a nice summary of it um, if you're looking for a place to get started. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, I tell my students you don't quote from Wikipedia in a scholarly paper, but you, but you start there. You look, you know, read what they got, look at their bibliography, because uh, that's the starting point for your, your own research often. Yeah, yeah, and... You know, for somebody like me to just kind of give you an outline of where to start thinking about it, it's kind of helpful. I've had so much fun with you guys. It's pretty wild to see some of these old photos, too. I mean, you would be surprised on Facebook, of all things. They they post, there's some sites, some individual pages where the the, uh, administrators of the pages post photos of the various hospitals, like 
example. I, in fact, it's not until 1990. I actually found out where I was born because I'm an adoptee. And that was all hush back in those days. You know, it was, you know, I call it the culture of shame and blame. And they would not tell these children uh, much about, much if anything, about their, you know, their their birth history. So I finally, we finally tracked down my biological family. I found out where I was born, and it was in Confederate. And I've actually seen photos of Confederate as it looked in 1959-60. So this is right before I was born, about four or five years before I was born. So I was able to see, hey, this is what the place looked like. It was this big, imposing, you know, stone, or, or I say stone, concrete building over there in, in Shreveport. And you can go and look. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for. Oh, sorry, Stephen. But but they're they're vintage photos of all. Yeah. Media. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Martha. This has been yeah, great. Yeah. I, I hope I'll see you guys again, and we can. Great. Me too. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, y'all take care. You thank take you care. so much. Yeah. Okay. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye. We want to thank Doctor Boone for coming on our podcast. Really for. Uh, you know, holding those memories and then being willing to share them with us. Because uh, I bet everybody that worked there could write a book, Stephen. <laughs> would, uh, um, because, you know, it's a place of larger-than-life events happening all, all oh, yeah. the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think, and I keep harping on this, not because it's, you know, some triviality, but because it is something critical, I think, to not just to what we do, but to us as a species, the people, people need to be preserving stories, you know, um, we are our stories, and if we once lose those stories, then, you know, those events and people are forgotten, much less their significance is forgotten, too, so it's, it's good to see that she's preserved some of these stories of that, you know, those experiences. Well, and there's a part of me that would like to see them bring back charity, you know, that was it was closed down for really bad reasons, you know, the, the vulture capitalism and, you know, let's close down all the institutions we can and we'll rebuild something else. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but, you know, the, the folks aren't home to stop this from happening. And so they were able to push through a lot, like closing down the, uh, the school district, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we haven't undone the damage of the Bush. That's just, you know, the truth of it. Well, for the losers... No, and we're facing more damage as, as we speak. Yeah. Right, we, I mean, what if Trump gets elected this Well, time? and, like, look at, look at you know, Landry. I mean, that's... Oh, right. Speak, that speaks for itself, and he's... He's I mean, already started... Yeah, start yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah it's, I mean, the, the administration's going to bleed corruption, among other things. Oh, yeah. Well, he said he'd give money to his friends, and so it has to come from somewhere. Taking food off his kids' plates, books out of their hands. That's a, that's a lovely way to do it. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to thank Martha for stopping in with us this week and, and, and you know, sharing her experiences at charity and also talking some about, again, about her writing career. If you do have a chance, get out and, and you know, get a copy of her book. She's pretty active on social media. Uh, she's posting a lot of stuff quite a bit about about this book and also about some talks she's giving. So, you know, get a copy of the book. If she comes to your area, try to go and hear her, you know, speak about her experiences. She's a very, as, as we've learned, she's a very engaging speaker. So I think uh, anybody that, that goes and attends one of these talks that she gives is really going to enjoy it. Yeah, 
So again, thank you, Martha, for joining us. We also want to thank all of you for listening in, and we hope you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.